My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God. And today we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, which is an amazing chapter and something that I I just have always been fascinated by. And I love the, the understanding we get of Jesus as we navigate this particular chapter. So uh, we're going to be looking today at verses 1 to 13 of uh, Matthew chapter 17. And uh, let's get into it because it's an amazing piece of scripture. It comes after Jesus has just had a very interesting conversation with the disciples in Matthew chapter 16. And they've understood who he is. And then, you know, Peter's gotten frustrated with Jesus, starts rebuking him. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Um, and then Jesus says, listen, if you're going to be like me and be a follower of mine, you're going to have to take up your cross and basically you're going to die one day. But uh, it's no good if you gain the whole world and lose your soul. So very sobering passages in Matthew 16. Then we get to 17, verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, uh, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. The transfiguration of Jesus. What an amazing, amazing opportunity for Peter, James and John. Jesus did not invite all the disciples. Now, maybe this was because he didn't want the miracle spreading or being told before the time was right, uh, which he kind of alludes to in further on in this chapter in verse 9. And he takes them up onto a high mountain. Been many suggestions about the location of the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, Mount Tabor has been suggested. Uh, Mount Hermon has been suggested. Mount Myron has been suggested. I've spoken to experts of the land of Israel. Most of the ones that I've spoken to, or pretty much all of them, I should say, not most, uh, assign Mount Hermon as the most likely place for the Mount of Transfiguration. Transfiguration, which was up in the north. Why do they say that? Because that's where Jesus was when this happened. Six days, it was six days after he was in the area of Caesarea Philippi, so that he was already up in the north. Now, so that's what they, most of them think. And, uh, you know, we will never know. Okay. We're not going to know. We can only take a rough guess. Okay. The name High Mountain, Spurgeon said this can never be known. For those who knew the locality of the mountain have left no information as to which it was. Tabor, if you please. Hermon, if you prefer it. No one can decide. <laughs> Just some reality by Spurgeon. So he was transfigured before them. Let's get, rather than worrying about where it was, it was on a high mountain somewhere and he was transfigured. He was transformed. Trans changed. Figured. Changed. The fi- his figure changed. His formation changed. Not merely just a change in outward appearance. And whatever the effect was, it was, it was incredibly striking. And Jesus became so bright in appearance that he, he was like the sun and difficult to look at. The uh, verb, David Guzik says this, the verb metamorpho, which means to transfigure, transform or change in form, 
suggests a change of inmost nature that may be outwardly visible. And that was David Guzik quoting D.A. Carson. Uh, it may be that this glory shone forth in the Garden of Gethsemane when those who arrested him fell back when Jesus said, I am, all of a sudden he revealed. And they went, oh, that's who he is. Wow, we get to actually physically see it now. Now, essentially, this was not a new miracle, but the temporary cessation of an ongoing one. The real miracle was that Jesus, most of the time, could actually keep from displaying his glory. And John said, we beheld his glory. Peter wrote, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Spurgeon said this, for Christ to be glorious was almost a less matter than for him to restrain or hide his glory. It is forever his glory that he concealed his glory. And that, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. This happened as a fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, we should remember that um, the original writings of the apostles uh, did not have chapters and verses the way that we have them, just as, as an aside. His face shone like the sun. It was his face, his face. He wasn't transformed into another being with another body. It was his face that shone. David Guzik, Jesus has his disciples with him when he shines in his glory. He is not glorified apart from them because they share in his glory. John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Spurgeon said this, Another thing which we may learn from our Lord Jesus Christ, having shown himself to his apostles, thus robed in brightness, is that we are scarcely aware of the glory of which the human body is capable. I love that. So let's move on to verse 3. So Jesus is transfigured. He starts shining like the sun. They can't look at him. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, these two Old Testament you know, people appeared and spoke with the transfigured Jesus. Moses lived 1,400 years before that. Elijah, 900 years before. Yet they were alive now and in some sort of resurrected, glorified state. Now, it's fair to think that these two particular people from the Old Testament appeared because they represent Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. And the sum of the Old Testament revelation came to meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You could also say that Moses and Elijah represent those who are caught up to God. We read about that, about Moses in Jude 9 and Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. More specifically, Moses represents those who die and go to glory and Elijah represents those who are caught up to heaven without death, which is also representative of those who will be caught up in the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Spurgeon said this, From this we see that saints long departed are still alive. They live in their personality, are known by their names, and enjoy near access to Jesus Christ. 
So they're talking with him. Now, Luke 9, 31 tells us the theme of their conversation, that they spoke of his decrease, which was what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And they spoke of the upcoming work of the cross and presumably of the resurrection that was to follow. Verse 4. Then Peter an answered to Jesus and said, see, it's Peter again. It's always Peter. Peter's either, <laughs> Peter's either saying things that are miraculous revelations or putting his massive foot in his mouth. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, uh, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <laughs> While he was still speaking, in other words, Jesus did not let him finish the sentence. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Uh, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9 point out that Peter didn't know what he was saying when he was saying this. So when he's saying it's good for us to be here, let us build a tabernacle, he literally wasn't aware of what he was saying. He didn't know what he was saying. It didn't make sense, even to him. And even though he said it without thinking about it, the effect of his words put Jesus on an equal level with Moses and Elijah. Yeah, He wanted to build equal shrines with them. And you can't do that. Moses and Elijah, not equal with Jesus. So what happens? A bright cloud overshadows them. That's the cloud of God's glory. It's called the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. And from this cloud of glory, this is what God speaks from. Spurgeon, when God draws near to man, it is absolutely necessary that his glory should be veiled and covered. No man can see his face and live. Hence the cloud in this instance and in other cases. And what does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. The father from heaven rebuked Peter's attempt to put Jesus on an equal footing with Moses and Elijah. And while he was still speaking, it was important to interrupt Peter. Peter needed to be interrupted so that everybody would know that Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah. He deserves special attention. So hear him. Don't hear what Moses and Elijah got to say. Hear him. Hear Jesus. Now, everything that the Father said in this particular statement here came from scriptures. In Psalm, in, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 2, you've got the Father says to the Son, You are my Son. In Isaiah 42, the Father says to his Son that he is the only one in whom my soul delights. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, God the Father says through Moses the prophet about the coming of Jesus, him you shall hear. This is an encapsulation of God the Father revealing the prophetic statements about Jesus coming for this very moment. It's another, it's another development in the significant theme of the Gospel of Matthew here of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And I'll tell you why. Because with these words from heaven, God the Father clearly set Jesus above the law and above the prophets. He was not another prophet. He was not even a better lawgiver. Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. Spurgeon, if the Father says, This is my Son, 
observed the graciousness of our own adoption. With such a son, the Lord had no need of children. He did not make us his children because he needed sons, but because we needed a father. God the Father says to all present, hear him, Jesus. If we're going to listen to anybody, listen to Jesus. God the Father said that. You know, what's interesting is that God's voice from heaven didn't say, listen to me. He said, listen to him, hear him. Everything always points us to Jesus. Even the Father points us to Jesus. The Father points us to what Jesus says. Poole said this, Which words establish Christ as the only doctor and the teacher of his church? It's Jesus alone that is the healer. It's Jesus alone that is the teacher. It's Jesus alone to whom we should look. Spurgeon, if we be disciples of Jesus, then let us follow Jesus and follow him with other men only so far as we perceive that they follow Christ themselves. This is, this is where we get an understanding that it's only Jesus. So then we move on to verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They didn't fall on their faces when they saw Jesus transfigured, interestingly enough. Not when his face shone upon him like the sun did they fall on their faces. Not when his clothes became as white as light did they fall on his faces on their faces. Not when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus did they fall on their faces. Not when Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus did they fall on their faces. And not even when the the cloud of glory appeared and overshadowed them did they fall on their faces. But when the disciples heard heard the voice from heaven, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Spurgeon, they were in the immediate presence of God and listening to their father's voice. Well might they lie prostrate and tremble. Too clear a manifestation of God, even though it related to Jesus, would rather overpower than empower us gives us a great understanding of the power of God, the Father. He says, Arise and do not be afraid. The disciples were once again uniquely in awe of Jesus, which help explains the purpose of the transfiguration, which was partly to reassure the disciples that Jesus really was the Messiah, Peter, James and John. And even if he would indeed be crucified as he is so surprisingly revealed to them just a few verses beforehand. But we have to note the context here. Jesus just revealed that his humiliation and sufferings that he was about to go through to them. And it makes sense that now they receive another divine testimony of who Jesus is and his status as as the son of God. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus. Their their entire focus was forced to be on Jesus alone in that moment. The cloud's gone. Moses is gone. Elijah has disappeared. 
David Guzik makes some interesting observations. It might have been that after the events of the Transfiguration, no one remained for the disciples. Theoretically, when the experience was over, there would have been no Moses, no Elijah, and no Jesus. This is exactly the experience of many. They have some spiritual experience or receive some ministry from the Holy Spirit of God, but when it's over, it's over, done and gone. Nothing remains. Secondly, it might have been that after the events of the Transfiguration, only Moses remained for the disciples. Though Moses was a great man, compared to Jesus, he was like the moon to the sun. It would be sad to exchange the grace and truth that came by Jesus for the law that came by Moses. But there are those sad ones who see Moses and his law only. Thirdly, it might have been that after the events of the Transfiguration, only Elijah remained for the disciples. Elijah was a great man for the power of his word and the boldness of his national reforms. Yet all this doesn't compare to the person and the work of Jesus. And finally, it might have been that after the events of the Transfiguration, all three remained. At first, this might have seemed to be the best. Why not all three? Yet now that Jesus has come, Moses and Elijah can fade in their supportive roles and never be put on the same level as Jesus. And Spurgeon sums up this verse. At this day, my brethren, we have no master but Christ. One is our master, and that one is enough. For we have learned to see the wisdom of God and the power of God in Jesus only. Wouldn't have been amazing. Let me read from verse 9. Now, as they came down from the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John with Jesus, Jesus commanded them, Peter, James, and John, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. In other words, don't tell anybody until after I'm resurrected. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Tell the vision to no one. Wisely, Jesus told the disciples to not speak of his transfiguration after the resurrection, because the resurrection of Jesus was the final confirmation of Jesus' ministry and his glory. And until then, reports of the transfiguration would be more likely to test the faith of those who did not see it rather than strengthen their faith. Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The disciples had heard that Elijah must come. And it was a promise in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So their question could, I guess, go a little bit like this. Jesus, we know Elijah comes first before the Messiah. We know you're the Messiah, yet we just saw Elijah, and it seems that he came after you. And Jesus says, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So Jesus assures and reassures the disciples that Elijah would indeed come first. But the first coming of Jesus did not bring the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Instead, the Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 coming of Elijah is probably best identified with the appearance of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 and then the second coming 
of Jesus. So Jesus says, but I say to you, Elijah has come already. So there was also a sense in which Jesus could rightly say, Elijah has come already. Elijah had arrived in the work of John the Baptist, who ministered in, as Luke said in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, in Elijah's spirit and power. Now, there is evident from a comparison, uh, well, this is evident, is, is, is from a comparison of the life of Elijah and the life and work of John the Baptist. Elijah was full of zeal for God, so was John the Baptist. Elijah boldly rebuked sin in high places, so did John the Baptist. Elijah called sinners and compromisers to a decision of repentance, so did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted multitudes, multitudes in his ministry, so did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted the attention and fury of a king and his wife, so did John the Baptist. Remember Herodias? Elijah was plain and simple as a man in the way he lived, so was John the Baptist. Elijah fled to the wilderness, John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. Elijah lived in a corrupt time and was used to restore a failing spiritual life. And so it was true of John the Baptist. Which leads us to our observation today. Jesus, always, only Jesus. Jesus the teacher, Jesus the healer, Jesus the counselor, Jesus the Saviour, Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Comforter, Jesus, 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 always, only Jesus. Jesus is all I need. Jesus, you're all I need. That's our statement today. Whatever you're going through right now, just take a breath. There's a lot of things you think you need. But I want you to be reminded right now that all you need is Jesus. Just take a breath. Say, Jesus, you're all I need. Thank you that you're all I need. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have an understanding that you are all we need. Jesus, you are our Savior, our Lord, our healer. We thank you for all the things that you are to us. You are the one who makes it possible for us to live redeemed lives. Lives that have a hope of eternity with our Heavenly Father. And so I pray, Lord, right now for everybody who has a need. And Lord, I know some of those needs, they're legitimate needs. And, and my heart goes to those people who have such deep needs, Lord, life and death needs. But I pray, Lord, right now that in the perspective of whatever needs any of us are praying for, that we'd understand that all we really need is Jesus. And that all anybody needs is Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.